Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Arizona River Runners. Just getting started on your own big adventures? Arizona River Runners' three-day Grand Canyon heli, ranch, and raft trip blends authentic western ranch experience with world-class whitewater. Explore secret waterfalls and drift to sleep on the banks of the Colorado River under a blanket of stars. Longer trips are available as well. Let Arizona River Runners take care of the details on your own big adventure. Visit RaftArizona.com. Welcome, you guys. It's Big Adventures with Brian Durker. I'm Brian Durker, and I'm going to sit down with truly the Renaissance guy. Michael Collier is a medical doctor, a geologist, an artist, a pilot. You name it, Michael does it. And he's done it well for years. He's a great Grand Canyon River boatman from way back. And uh, golly, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and catching up with Michael. And I am really glad you guys are sitting in on it. So enjoy yourselves by relaxing, having a hot beverage or a cold one. And uh, let's get a load of Michael Collier. Talk a little bit about structural geology in Grand Canyon, if you don't mind. Like, what what were you looking at? What were you doing back then? Let me get a running start on that. Let's come back to your, your question about structure. I um, started out in Schenectady, New York, uh, went to high school in, or school in Phoenix, and went to a Jesuit high school trophy. And that was one of the best things that I ever did. It was full of people who really wanted to teach you. One guy said, what do you mean you believe in God at a, at a Catholic school? What a great question. <laughs> but I, I took a shine to this one teacher, Father Kravonik. He was a geometry teacher. And years later, to jump way ahead, this woman came into the clinic in Williams and it was late. She had a cold or something and I took care of her. And got to talking and she said that she was from Santa Clara. And I said, oh, what do you do there? And she said, oh, I work in a, a retirement home for Jesuits. And I said, really? And I said, is there any chance you know Father George Kravonik? And she said, yeah. And she just lit up. She just thought the world of him. He's an ancient man by, by then. So I wrote him a letter and I said, Father Kravonik, you probably don't remember me from high school, which is 50 plus years ago, but you taught me geometry and look, I'm a photographer and photography is purely geometry. Composition. Yes. Look, you taught me geometry and I studied structural geology. Um, that's if, if there's ever going to be something yeah, geometric. Yeah, there's an application there. And, and, and look, I'm a pilot and I fly instruments and, and that's pure geometry and boating, being on the water, is moving geometry. Oh, what a great letter to write. Every, everything so. that I've ever done, more or less, is at least touching upon, if not sprung from, what you taught me. And I, I was so glad to have that way of looking back on how that all fits together. Oh, and what a joy he must have gotten out of hearing one of his students express that. Because I think, you know, that's a selfless job, the the teachers in general and yeah. uh, to get that sort of uh, it was good. praise. That's fantastic. Yeah, it sparked a, a brief, enjoyable um, back and forthing of letters. So it was nice to, to say hi to him. Oh, so you did get a response letter? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very cool. I'm sure he's passed on by now. I haven't stayed in touch. Anyway, um, let me let me tell you how it, how it got started after Brophy. I came up to Flagstaff I was a forestry major for maybe a semester, but I never uh, took any forestry classes. I got seduced by English at Brophy. I had always taken my lunch money on Monday, for the week's lunch money, and spent it on novels. And I would sit reading. Instead of eating lunch, I'd read Hemingway and Faulkner and Steinbeck. Well, that's why you're so damn skinny. Yeah. 
it, it worked for a while. And the uh, forestry didn't last, but English uh, was working. But I had no business being in college. I was not a college student. I had no business being at NAU. So um, Jim Evans and I built a treehouse in December, the fall of 69. It would have been my sophomore year. And we we ran around Flagstaff on on little 50cc Honda mini bikes and stole lumber and took drug it out onto Observatory Mason, built this treehouse. And and I, I lived in it briefly until I just quit in AU, went to Prescott College and was trying to find a more interesting way to be in school, but even that didn't work. I, I lasted there for a few weeks once I got there, um, uh, finished out the first quarter and then took a sabbatical. I, uh, I was studying something called light graphics with Jay Dussard which I think is photography. I never really figured it out, but I, I, I moved to Santa Fe and I, I worked as a carpenter, um, busboy, whatever I could do to keep body and soul together. And that was 1970. At Prescott College, I did my first Grand Canyon trip. It was uh, with Vern Taylor, who was a geologist. Yeah, I remember Vern Taylor, yeah. I, I don't remember him very well. It was a brief encounter. I just did the top half. Um, it, it stood out. Two boats, two paddle boats, little Danish things that were totally unseaworthy. Went into Stanton's cave. Back in their ways, he had a key. Um, he knew that Bob Bueller was coming down the river soon after we were there in April. And so nobody was on the river. But we, we hiked up the salt or the, the little Colorado toward the um, Sipapu. But on the way, there's a, a cave on the left as you're going up. It's it's a little hollowed out, out of bend. And we brought along a doll, which we singed in a fire. And we buried it just far enough of the way that it was almost <laughs> consistent. And Mueller found it a few weeks later. He made a big fuss about it until Vern couldn't hold the laughter in it anymore. They never became friends after that. <laughs> that is funny because nobody does that stuff. I remember going into into the Sipapu. I don't know that you should be doing that, but this is 1970, and the ethics were were different. Holding my breath, and you could see the the pahos. old old feathers, the pahos and, yeah, on the pahos walls, on the walls and stuff. Yeah, I mean back then. I always took my shoes off when I walked up on top of it. I was always barefoot. I, uh, when we were kids here uh, in Flagstaff, we had a Hopi house mother because my mom was a nurse, dad was a doctor. And so Lena Fred was her name. She was married to a Navajo. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot about uh, the Hopi as a young boy and went out to the reservation and saw early dances and stuff with her. But I had a complete reverence for the Sapapu, but it wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like I was violating anybody by visiting the place so long as I was respectful while I was there. Now, you know, with all the visitation, I think the it's proper not to walk up on it or yeah. crawl down into it, which I also did. <laughs> you had to hold your breath when you're down in there because the CO2 is heavier than it Yeah, was. it was. It was heavy, and it's such a strange little caldera of... Blue bubbling. Yeah, whatever. And it's all CO2. With the yellow kind of fringe on it and stuff. Really bizarre place. Well, and a sacred place. Yeah. And, and I think the... I think mores change, values change, uh, times change, and and I don't I don't feel hemmed in by not being able to go up in there now. To the the ways in which we respect things evolve. Well, and I don't think it's you know I I I want this podcast to be of honesty of experience and and tale, uh, and uh, we shouldn't deny having done something that we did in the old days because rules have changed along the way. Our perspectives have changed along the way. But I think ultimately, same thing with me. I've actually brought Hopi elders to the site and pointed it out and then turned away and let them be have it to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I haven't been on top of the Sapapus since the 70s. Uh, and I've never felt bad about that. Hey, on the other hand, 
had you not done it, if the dams on the little on the little Colorado go in, you won't have a chance. That's right. Is that unreal? And we'll, you know, I think I want to get to that uh, towards the end of this visit. But let's stay on track with uh, where you were going with with I, I think what spurred it was the geology. But uh, 1970. Uh, soon thereafter, I was in the Air Force during Vietnam. And um, that was <clears throat> in lieu of being drafted. I thought, well, I could be a medic, but that didn't work out. So they wanted me to be in the security police. And I said, I'll be the best goddamn security policeman you've ever had. This is 1971. With one exception, I won't carry a gun. And that pissed them off. And so I spent a year applying for what's called a conscientious objector within the military. My CO status had been denied before this whole rigmarole. And so... They spent a year trying to figure it out and um, got done with that. They said, well, you can just be an illustrator. You don't have to be a cop. All right. So I tried that. Finally, I just said, I'm turned black inside. I have to do something different than this path. And so I said, I quit. And I, I was perfectly, I, this is the greatest disappointment in my father's life ever, that I wanted to quit the military. But I... I couldn't stand the blackness inside of me being in the military well, during I, Vietnam. I think by then, 71, <clears throat> the whole country uh, was turning on that event of Vietnam. I, I was involved not until 74, but when Nixon pulled out, I was uh, graduating from high school. And it was even clear to my generation, it was extremely imposing. Mm-hmm thing yeah. to deal with it, it was it it turned out to be the best thing that could have ever happened to me it was a time in my life i was 21 by the 20 24 and and by the time i was discharged honorably for no good reason i was one of the least productive soldiers the u.s has ever had <laughs> but but um it it taught me an incredible lesson a Believe what you believe and listen to what your heart's trying to tell you and do the right thing. And to have gone up against the monolith, aware of, but not ignoring, but just taking in stride the potential com- consequences was really important. You know, I could have got it. That would be an important lesson at that age, for sure. Going up against the monolith, it stood me in good stead. Got out. Got on my bicycle, rode from Vandenberg near Santa Barbara up to San Francisco, was free as a bird. So that was a path many took, the San Francisco. And- well, I, I stayed for a few days with a friend and bicycled back down. And Arizona, uh, 74, went to, I, I thought ah, I should get a degree in something. And so I went to NAU. And instead of studying photography, because starting in 70, I was publishing pictures in magazines in Los Angeles and um, Colorado and not not major magazines, but um, things that gave me an excuse to be out and about. And I thought, well, I could study photography. But instead, I think I'll study something that I can apply to the photography. And, and so got a degree at NAU in, in, as an undergraduate in geology. Chuck Barnes was my uh, mentor oh, yeah. in geology. He's the first of five mentors that I'll mention. And Peter Wynn in mineralogy class, Ray Eastwood's mineralogy class, turned around in the middle of class while Ray was trying to teach. And he kind of whispered from the chair in front of me, hey, you want to buy a kayak? I said, yeah, what's a kayak? And um, <laughs> so I think I bought Piglet for $75. Where I got the money, I don't know, but he, he taught me how to roll. We, we'd go over to the what was then the women's gym. It's now an art building or a gallery, I think, just south of Old Main. And the swimming, the NAU swimming pools there is a 25-yard pool with a big pipe running just under the water line where you would normally flip a turn. Um, but Pete taught me to row or to, to roll. And for the listener, uh, Pete's another famous old Grand Canyon name that pops up. Here and uh, Pete and his brother David, David Michael. and Michael, and yeah, the, a great family of past. But go ahead. Well, Peter, Peter um, was a, a vibrant soul, he was the heart of Arda 
American River Tour Association. Peter was instrumental in, he designed the snout boats. And so he, he was very much involved in ARTA from the very beginning. And on December 21st, Peter, George Ruffner, Gwen Waring, Oh, wow. Uh, John Thomas, who went on to work for Steve Carruthers for a long, long JT, time. JT, you bet. Um, his girlfriend, Nancy, Beth Aitchison, who was Peter's girlfriend, and Lori Brown, who I got to know. Uh, she's now a pediatrician here in Flagstaff, did a Cataract Canyon trip. And, Brian, this was really important to me because this is December. And we, we drove up to Moab. We, we hit out in a Holiday Inn under construction. We, we could camp and nobody would see us out of the snow. And we drove down to Potash and put the two boats together. And the ranger, who were the park service guy who, who came out to get, deal with the permits, thought we were nuts to be putting on. There was ice floating down the river. Low water. Low water. And did this eight-person, two-boat Cataract Canyon trip in December of 1974. Oh, that's wild, yeah. And it was cold. During the day, it would just be slush ice, but at night it would be this plate ice drifting, these little lily pads of ice drifting down the road. Unreal. And we we got to the slide, which is three miles above the, the confluence. And John Thomas was, John was, JT was rowing his Green River. It had two chambers, a left chamber and a right chamber. And one of those lily pads of ice got turned on edge with a little current willy was on the slide. And like a buzzsaw hit his boat and <laughs> it half the boat sank. <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> got, o- got over to the shore and we spent the night hanging on this rock, holding a lantern up by the patch to provide enough heat that the patch would take. And it did. And uh, uh, just uh, for the listener, too, uh, Cataract's an incredible stretch of the Colorado River. It, it's uh, They were on the Colorado River side, which comes down and confluence with the Green River. And then from that point down to Upper Lake Powell, is some of the biggest water, like at high water, cataracts like the biggest water we have in North America, really. Pete, when subsequently went through the big drops in that high, big water, at high water, and his spray skirt never came off, it was 70,000 cubic feet of Yeah, socket. that's big. And his boat at the bottom was half full of water. And he said, my spray skirt never came off. So he figured he'd just open his mouth and he beat it all up. <laughs> but it got slammed in through the pores of everything. Yeah. Well, we we at the after the slide after fixing the boat, we thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So what we did was we stopped for I think a week, a long time, and went hiking up Red Canyon on one side, over the Dolls House on the other, and it was heaven. Yeah, and Brian, for the first hiking. time in my life, I was twenty four, twenty five, twenty four. For the first time in my life, I'd open my eyes one night and I, I thought to myself, I'll be darned, this is where I belong. And that, that felt so right. I, I suspect not everybody has that it's moment that when moment, they open their eyes. That light going on. Yep. Beautiful. And so, in a geologic sense, did you grasp your mission? No, I didn't know anything about geology. Yeah, that's not true. I was, I was beginning to study geology and I, I thought that rocks were cute. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I've never really heard them described that way, but you're right. They, a lot of them are really cute. Interestingly, the the walls of cataract are sloughing down, carved fast enough that they just sort of fall into the river. Is, is my understanding that um, the rapids are not necessarily made by by debris flows coming down canyons so much as just debris coming off the walls. And so for that, what, 17-mile stretch of rapids in Cataract Canyon, it's, it has to do with the walls buckling, which was foretold something I did with my master's later on. But um, we got through the rapids. It, like you say, it was lowish water. They weren't very hard. 
um, I was doing a story for Colorado Magazine about the trip, and I would stand on shore while people were boating along with ice all over the rocks that they were getting around. And any any rock out out of the water consistently was ice covered. And we thought, Teehee, isn't this fun? And we got down below Big Drop 3, Sheep Canyon, I think, um, near Sheep Canyon. And all of a sudden, all the way across the river, where the river was starting to back up from Lake Powell, was ice. It was just a line of ice. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, I've, I've heard of that. I've, I've and heard our, of that. our two rafts went thunk, thunk up against the edge of the leading edge, edge of the ice. And the water's foaming on down into to Lake, Me- Lake Powell. A hazardous scenario, to say the least. But we had Peter win. And so Peter took the a bow line and he started, we were maybe, I don't know, 50 feet, 50 yards out from shore and 50 feet. And he took the bow line and he started to walk across the ice over to the shore. Wow. But unfortunately, Peter went through and all we saw was the line sizzling out as he was sucked into Lake Powell. And not too long after he came back, climbed up back up the rope through the water going around him and said that didn't work. So we have to roll the boats along the leading edge of this this. Oh, wow. Ice. That's wild stuff. And we parked the boats. Uh, it's just above Waterholes Canyon. It's on the right. And we abandoned them. It was By then it was January 2nd, I think. January 1st. January 1st. And uh, Peter and JT and I went and found a route up Waterholes. Nobody had ever climbed out of it to our knowledge. And Peter and I found this one wall that was maybe 60 feet straight up through Oh gosh, I forget the limestone, but it was knobbly enough that we we upclimbed it, and we took off running back up the canyon, and realized, God, you can get out this way. This is wonderful. So we came back, and by then it was pitch black, dark, pitch black. You hold your hand in front of your face, and you couldn't see your hand. December, January, we had to downcline this wall, and that was the easy part. Then we had two miles to walk, or two miles back up river along the the talus, and you'd be walking along. And, and that sudden, was the hard part. Yeah, that was the hard part because it was totally black. It was like sensory deprivation training, and you just sense all of a sudden you'd stop, and sure you'd drop a rock and you'd hear it hit the ground a few seconds later because there was a little arroyo cutting that you were just about to. Stop. We made it back, managed to get the boats. Bundled up, we left them there till March when we came back and got them. But we, we and, and you trooped the whole trip out, yep, up, up through that cliff and all that. I've got a toenail frostbite to show for it. And you know, also in follow up, uh, in regards to the structural elements of cataract, what Michael's talking about is the debris coming from the, the cliffs. As compared to Grand Canyon, the rapids are caused by tributaries dumping a bunch of debris in. So it's more of a pool and drop. Where up in Cataract Canyon, it's a lot more random as to where the debris has stacked up and just made some horrific uh, rapids. But another interesting thing about Cataract at that low water you were on is there's these gigantic boulders that... uh, at high water, make these incredibly large whitewater features. But at low water like that, there are house-sized boulders and stuff that you're spindling down through and stuff. So big difference in the hydrology of uh, cataract compared to the Grand Canyon. But yeah, well, I guess, you know, so this is what you're 74. Were you in the Grand Canyon by then? Nope. Not other than that Presky College, College trip. No, I was I was studying geology, and I had gotten to know my second mentor, John Running, and he was good friends with Patrick Conley up in the at Marble Canyon, right? Who ran Fort Lee expeditions. Yep. And um, Patrick said, "Hey, you're studying geology. Why don't you come on a Fort Lee trip, and you can be the geologist?" And that was my first through trip was on a motorboat. Um, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And Gary was teaching um, natural history of the canyons we're going through, and I realized, oh, the geology that I'm studying could have an audience. And I, I kind of enjoyed that. I did a couple of, uh, as a side note, I did a few 
Wild and Senile trips with Patrick's company, Wild and Senile. Oh, cool. Yeah, Wild and Senile. I remember those. Wild and Scenic. Yeah. And did those on the green, on the, on the, oh, cool. on the San Juan. Uh, and they were wonderful. Hugh, Rick, and I were kind of partners on those trips very often. And, and we, we enjoyed folks. I, I continued seeing people from those trips for, for years later. And um, in 76, I went to get a graduate degree. I thought I finished a, an undergraduate degree in geology. My intention was to learn something that I could photograph. And, and I thought, what do I really want to do with this undergraduate degree? If, I'm, if people are going to take me seriously as a photographer, writer, maybe I needed another degree. And there were things that I kind of wanted to learn anyway. And so I went to California and got a graduate degree in structural geology, which is study of basically faults and folds and how rocks are right. twisted around. And Chuck Barnes, that first mentor, had told me something terribly important. He said, Michael, if you're going off to graduate school and you have to choose a, a thesis area, choose the area first where you want to be and then choose what you want to study. In other words, love the land that you're in and then learn about it. That, that Yeah, pure, that's, that's that sounds like brilliant advice. It's pure Chuck Barnes. What a wonderful person. And so I did. And there's I, I chose Grand Canyon and there's an area that you can only reach by river. Um, and I laid out a, a master's thesis that dealt with what another geologist had said was the toothpaste effect where Rocks from mile one, you can conceivably see it as early as 140, 140, maybe certainly by 144, mile 144, and down past um, Havasu, and it, and it becomes more dramatic, and then it flares before you get to lava. So about 20-mile yeah. stretch where the Muav limestone is bent up symmetrically on both sides. Exactly. And this other geologist had said, it's the Bright Angel Shale being liquefied by the proximity to the river water and and lifting up, hydrating and lifting up and bending up that rock. Cool. That's that's a good thesis, a good hypothesis. His name was, I call him Peter Pontoon, but his real name was Peter Hunt. Pontoon, yeah, exactly. And uh, I went down there and I looked at it and I, I said, you know, something's f fishy about this. Because if you go up Matcat, as you're walking up, <clears throat> you'll you'll see these funny little thrust fault, thrust sheets in it, and thrust sheets are a compressive phenomenon. If you if you hydrate and push up with the the bright angel shale, everything's being extended. But there are these thrust sheets. Um, you can easily see them right around Matcat, out on along the river. If you hike up uh, the opposing walls, but everything pretty much peters out, what, 300 feet, 500 feet from the center line of the river. Maybe, I, I don't know the exact footage, but everything f becomes, the, 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 the flexure decreases as you walk away into the side canyon. So something's going on specific to the, to the river, and it involves compression, not tension, because there are these thrust sheets, and thrusts can only happen under compression. Oh, yeah. And I, I think one of the first times that you and I really talked and stuff, I pulled over and asked you what you were up to. And you were scram scrambling up those little side. I was making two miles events. a day. Yeah, yeah you was, were there for a while, as I recall. Yeah. Very it, cool. If you if you look at that Moav, and there, it has the Moav has different members, the Hevesu member, the Kanab member. And they're, they're, they have different characteristics based on how thick the plating is, mm -hmm. the, the individual's uh, structurally sound parts of it. And there's another huge event going on called kink folds. And the, the, if, you, if you take an engineering uh, approach to how does uh, stress deal with strain, how does uh, pressure on a, on a material create a deformation what's the pattern of the deformation you only get kink folds under very specific compressive features oh interesting and so i thought oh this happened when the muav was a complete 
block under the river and river water is involved. It's, it's sort of seeping down in the limestone of the Moab. And the, the Moab is a real sandy, shaly limestone. Or it's a limestone with a lot of sandy, shaly inner partings. And right. my thought was, wait a minute, what if that water from the river was coming down and hydrating those shale partings so that it becomes slippery? And so, in, so instead of trying to bend a, a four-inch block of wood with your hands, if all of a sudden that block of wood became a telephone book, you could bend it because there's so many interpartings. And all of a sudden you can bend it if you're pressing from the sides into an sort of, I can only do it with my hands. I can't, I can't describe it, but things bend because when they get hydrated, what if, oh my God, what if there was one event that caused this? If, if you look at those theories of, of plastic versus elastic strain, plastic happens slowly, elastic theoretically happens instantaneously. Oh yeah. Hmm. What if the instantaneous event was the the lava dams down at Lava Rapid coming down off of Dewey? Oh, interesting. And so all of a sudden you got a twenty five hundred foot lake. You got twenty five hundred feet of hydraulic head driving the water into the to the beds. You may have run into me, Brian, at ledges. Yep. I was I was looking. We were camped at ledges, and Wesley was. Providing a, a, a the most obscene uh, uh, pantomime with a flashlight, and he and a woman who were on the trip casting their shadows on the far wall across the river. And so our attention was directed to that far wall, and I was looking at the Havasu member of the Muaf, and and there are places that break out about one meter apart, all up and down that wall. And I'm trying to focus on all this theoretical in structural engineering concepts of all this amazing obscene pantomime that was going on. <laughs> <clears throat> and suddenly the light came on. My God, they're a meter apart. And when I got back to a piece of pencil and paper, I ran out some of the calculations. And it should have happened when there was enough water that if you hydrate enough of the partings on average about a meter apart, it'll become weak enough, like that telephone book, that the whole system can snap into to a kink fold. Oh, and interesting. Thought, How cool is this? Yeah, that's where, cool. Where all of a sudden your, your theories are being corroborated by nature. Now, am I right? God knows. Who knows? Who knows? Well, Who knows? geology is an imperfect science. I've heard every geologist I've ever known say, you know, kind of qualify their theories by that statement and but um to move to move forward because uh, we're sure enough gonna eventually run out of time here also and I just want to kind of get this down uh, you've got a medical yeah. license and a degree a doctorate in medicine and tell it tell me a little bit about your practice when you uh, had an active practice I I remember you being in Williams for a while, but let's just talk about that just for a second, if you don't mind. It all runs back to the Grand Canyon, John. Well, that's why you're here. Uh, this is uh, there, all things Grand Canyon. Day five, no, day seven of a trip. We were past Granite, past Crystal, and I was just talking through the gyms. It was easy going. This guy, he's a doc. This is 80, no, 79. And... I had no idea that I was interested. I might eventually be interested in medicine. And I was just, just talking to him about what he did as a pediatrician. And he's, we were rowing Havasu's. He's sitting on the front tube, his hands just kind of laying in the water. And I'm rowing just slowly. And you can see the little V of water of his fingers as we're rowing. Touching the old girl. And uh, I said, what's it like being a doc? And he said, you can't imagine the power. I, I, what? You can't imagine the power of being a doctor. And he went on to describe how much good you can do with that. And he said, but if you for an instant forget where that power came from, and it came in his case often from the kids, but also their mom often, 
they can take that power away from you in a heartbeat. It has nothing to do with anything you learned in school or degrees or how much money you make. It's the power that people give you. And I thought, whoa, this is interesting. So I got to know Walt Taylor. He's my third uh, mentor. Oh, good one, good one, good one. And I shadowed him every Friday for like six months. And I thought, I, I could learn to love to do this. I was working as a freelance photographer, as a boatman. And, um, but I thought, I, I need something where I, when somebody says, how can you help me? I, I will have an answer. Where, where you can help them, right? Yeah, and so I went to medical school and became a family doc. And where'd you get your... Uh, Tucson. Medical school down in Tucson, okay. Tucson for the MD and then Grand Junction, which I uh, was my first choice for residency. It turned out to be a wonderful residency program designed for family practice. Uh-huh. Uh, there were only family practice docs. We had the run of the hospital. We had a hundred and. 25, 128 attendings who bent over backwards to teach us everything they could. It was perfect. I, I really, really loved it. Really good. Yeah, Rosie hated it because... Uh, well, you were in Grand Junction. We were in Grand Junction, and <laughs> and she all she remembers Just is... Just kidding, all you Grand Junction people. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. Rosie, Rosie's memory of it is those blue lights that on summer evening buzz every time a... a uh, an insect. Oh, the flashlight or the uh, insect. electric insect zappers. Yeah, zappers. That's her entire memory of Grand Junction. <laughs> but for me, it was 80 hours a week of, of no, 110 hours a week at times of, of study in medicine. And I just, I, I ate it up. I, it was a time to be utterly committed. Yeah, she would have had to have been tolerant of that sort of dedication to yeah. that it takes. I, I would not have made it through the first two years of Medical school without Rosie, I would have walked away. It, medical school initially is just open your mouth kind of large, wrap it around a fire hydrant, and somebody opens a fire hydrant <laughs> with all the stuff that you got to learn. Great analogy. And and after two years of that, then you're, you're essentially a doctor after your third, you're beginning your third year of residency. Yeah. No, of, of medical school. You're, you're oh, dealing with oh. patients. Yeah, you got. Yeah. you're limited in every, many things that you can do. But I, I needed to make it through those first two years, and it was all Rosie. Rosie's a writer uh, that I met when she worked at Grand Canyon and, and we've been married, she was so silly. We got married just before we moved down to Tucson to go to medical school. How, how she could have put. What fantastically poor timing. Yeah. There's one other, there's one other brand, one other person I definitely want to tell you about. And that is Wesley, because he's maybe the most important mentor of the ones that I wanted to mention. He's Um, a remarkable guy. Wesley. Um, Wesley was on the first Arta trip that I worked on as an assistant boatman. Louise Teal had blown out her back on the Selway River. Uh, <clears throat> she couldn't row, so I rowed her boat, a snout. And Wesley said, you can row my boat any time that other people won't let you row. And so I, I rowed the whole river the first time on an Arta trip. This is B-77. And Randy, of Randy's Rock fame, Marilyn Sayre, Beautiful, wonderful Marilyn Sayre and Louise and Wesley. Louise Teal. Louise Teal. Um, I, my respect for her knows no bounds. All of these are classic names, you guys that are listening. Grand Canyon one passenger, people. One passenger broke his wrist when he slipped as we were trying to get up into Silver Grotto. And I remember Wesley and, and Louise just fighting like cats and dogs about what to do as they were running back down to the boats to try to get supplies to help them splint them up and get them down. But we made it past that. I I guess we flew them out. Uh, I don't remember the helicopter, but we made it to the top of Crystal Rapid. And this is the night that I learned how to row. Um, we made it to the top of Crystal, and we we took that horrible, 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 horrible camp on the right, just before Crystal, where your gut turns all night. Yeah, you can hear it down there, the old hole, too. And so, yeah. And and so, uh, after dinner, I walked down, and I was just sitting there on the guide rock looking at how to make the run. Psychologically being absorbed by the crashing hole down there. Yeah, and absorbed or destroyed or whatever. And I just, and I, I was utterly torn. My respect for this moving water was so strong that I thought, 
how can I take people down through this rapid when I might hurt them? We have doctors and lawyers and all these people. How can I take them through if I don't, if I can't guarantee them safe passage? Nobody was else was there. And I'm, I'm wrestling with this and Wesley walks up quietly. He always walked quietly right behind me, sat down next to me and said, just pray to the river. He already was in your brain. There was something very mystic. If you Wesley. pray to the river <clears throat> correctly, um, with enough humility and with enough respect, everything will turn out okay. And that that advice well, it was more than advice. That that way of living uh, stood me in good stead. He was a tr- he was truly a mentor of mine as well, and I. I'll go into those stories later. But in light of time, let's talk a little bit about aviation. Um, That's my fifth mentor. Fifth and I promise you last one, Chris Condit. Okay. I was supposed to do a Grand Canyon trip. Rick Stetter was the editor of Plateau at the museum. Uh-huh. And yeah, he said, hey, Michael, we, we need pictures for a, uh, um, a breed, Bill Breed article about geology. Right. And there was a, a triptych. There was Steve Carruthers did one story. Uh, Bill Braid did another, and Kathy Wildy, if you remember her, remember she she did a story about the biology. But George Bill's uh, was about the geology, and he said, "Michael, we need pictures of the Colorado Plateau, and I need them in like ten days." And I said, "But I'm leaving in five days on a Grand Canyon trip." And he said, "I don't care, got to get them." And so I called this guy I had heard about named Chris Condit, and I said can I rent you? And so we spent three days in a rented Cessna 172 flying over the Colorado plateau um, and taking pictures that all showed up in this plateau issue. But I, I thought, I like this guy. Um, He has a cowboy hat on over under his, his headphones and he's chewing tobacco and he's spitting it into a can between the two of us and his then uh, we, we rented a 172, but he had a cub. We ended up flying together for four years before I got my license um, in 79. And uh, it was wonderful. And then right at the end of that four years, he said, go get your own damn license, which is was his way of kicking me out of the nest. Right. But he had already given you all you needed for that. And he's an instructor. And so all the time with him mattered and for, for me to get through the pilot's license test. He, he switched hats. He put on his instructor's hat. Instructor's hat. And I, he started saying, we'll do it this way and do it that way. And I said, bullshit. We don't, we don't fly that way. And he said, no, you got to fly this way. And we, we managed to stay friends. And I got my license and, and started flying in 70, on my own in 79. Long story short, you've Fallen in love with being an aviator and that airplane of yours, what was the name? The Buzzard. It, it had the buzzard. wingtips that kind of drooped, which in my, my, my faulty biology, I assumed that looked like a buzzard, so I called it the buzzard. No, it, was, the, it was a Cessna 180. Cessna built in 180. Beautiful, beautiful plane. 1955. I, I bought it in, during residency in 87 and put 5,500 hours on it. Yeah. And... Uh, it, it was. I flew it from Eastern Canada to Northern Alaska to Honduras and everywhere in between, and photographed out of it again. Right. I was going to get to that. You kind of combine that uh, skill set with your uh, aviation. But river running ties back into it because I learned. I was learning to fly in that seventy five, seventy nine era, as I was learning to kayak, and kayaking is what. Three-dimensional movement in a fluid medium. Well, guess what flying is? Three-dimensional movement in a fluid medium. Remember, I was going through Denali Pass, Cahilton Pass. Denali's on my left. I'm at 15,000, and Denali's another 5,000 feet above yeah, me. way out above you there. Mount Forker's there, Mount Hunter's there. Awesome. And it was just an amazingly beautiful morning. And I'm going through Cahilton Pass, and I realize, huh, I'm doing 150 miles an hour through the air, but I have made exactly zero progress on the ground. I'm standing still. In other words, we have 150 mile an hour wind coming through the pass that's absolutely laminar because I wasn't being buffeted at all. And I thought, you know, the carp can do it. I've seen the carp do it at Lava Falls. 
well, hell, I can do it. And I just sort of nosed around and I found a place where the eddies allowed me to get off. Yeah, it's so similar, huh? Yeah. Wild. It, 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 it meant a lot to me to fly that plane. I, I photographed out of it. Um, I landed it on the top of the red wall in the Western Grand Canyon. I, I, uh, survived the engine blowing up on the way to Denver. Um, set it down a couple times when the engine quit uh, near airport so I could just land without a motor. One morning, uh, I was in Boulder, Utah, and the, it was very moist out. It was above freezing and got the plane started. It, it didn't really want to go very bad that morning, more so than I realized. But I thought, I'm going to let it warm up for a long time before I try to get off, out of here. It was a, it's a long enough strip, but it was pretty narrow. and it was, it was dirt, a lot of vegetation growing on it. Finally, after war, warming up for like 20 minutes, I checked all the, the things you're supposed to check, uh, including carbice, and got to rolling and it was smooth silk. And, but it wasn't accelerating quite as fast as I thought the buzzard was accustomed at that altitude. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it's a vegetation and kept going. There goes a thousand feet. There goes 1200 feet. It's a 2000 foot long strip. And I broke ground at, I don't know, 1500 feet, but it wasn't climbing. I was just barely above the ground. And the end of the runway is coming up and I'm at 1800 feet. I'm utterly committed, but Brian, I'm, I'm, psychologically committed to this airplane. When I move my hands, the ailerons moved. Yeah, no, totally part of you for sure. And I believed in that airplane. That airplane had gotten me out of, into and out of some amazing places. And I utterly tr- trusted it. And I, but I wasn't climbing. And I was at the end of the strip as a northbound uh, departure into the wind. Um, there was another canyon. I think it's Sand Canyon just off to the left. And I was trying to get over the canyon because I knew that once I was airborne, I'd be okay. And then I could figure out what's going on. Why is it not performing like it? I'm used to it. And the tail caught some sagebrush and because I'm only two feet off the ground and it slowed me down five more, five knots or whatever. And um, I realized, oh my God, I think I'm not going to make it because there's a line of pinions um, between me and the, the canyon. Between you and the happy place of the, the canyon. The happy place yeah. in the sky. And um, I was probably doing, I don't know, 20, 30, when I uh, was bounding down through the, the sagebrush, when I was stopped unceremoniously by the pinions. Wings are bent. The propeller, I'd hit a stump was destroyed so that uh, it was all bent up. But the airframe, I, I looked at the airframe and I thought, my God, Buzzard, even in your, your final moments, because it was totaled, you, you've protected me. And we didn't turn over. There was no gas. There was gas spilling out. So I said, come on, guys, there's two passengers. We got to get out of here. Uh, before something goes up, because I didn't know what had happened. Here's to the buzzard, man. It kept you got, kept you sitting here. So walked back, drove back to the town of Boulder. I went back out there to kind of sad. I, I <laughs> kind of with a capital K and an I and an D A. Yep, and a big old ass. I I went back out there at sunset to to just sit with it. The insurance company was sending somebody up to haul it away. And there was a storm approaching from over Bryce in that canyon. The the, the plane, the hulk of it is the wreck of it was sitting right on the edge of this nose down over the toward looking at this canyon. And the winds were just howling up out of this canyon, blowing up updrafts. The storm's coming and while I'm sitting there, a hawk Redtail was hovering on that wind right over the plane. I was maybe 50 yards back just sitting there watching. And the hawk just hovered right over the plane for the longest time. And then it suddenly just lifted off and disappeared. And I thought, there goes the soul of that airplane. That was the signature there for sure. It, it was 
one of the saddest things that's ever happened to me. I, I, you know, we got, we got bounced around some, I don't think anybody was uh, seriously hurt. Everybody's fine. Um, but the, the idea of hurting somebody is, was absolutely anathema to, to me. And it's such a beautiful thing. And for it to have sadness to it, uh, associated with it is just so hard. I, I, I'd spend all that time flying, as I said, in one book, I fly for the view, but mostly I fly, fly for the vision. I just, I loved what I saw from the air. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's gone. That's you know gone. what that, that, uh, that hawk was kind of uh, the Wesley prayer to the sky, in a way. It's the same spirit to the land. And I identify with that. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with me, because I know it is difficult. And uh, in, in parting... Uh, of this conversation, we're going to make uh, Michael promise to be back soon to this thing because we have only barely scratched the surface of uh, these conversations we can have. You guys out there, thank you for your time. And thank you, Michael. Thank you, Brian. In many ways, you're a good friend. And, you know, actually, we're going to be better and better friends with every day that passes. I feel it that way. Like I say, keep it right side up, you guys. Thanks for sitting in. Adios. Let a Grand Canyon River trip be your big adventure. Arizona River Runner's three-day, two-night trip gives you the enchantment of a Western ranch experience, the thrill of a helicopter ride through millions of years of geology, and the rush of Colorado River Rapids. Take a weekend to unplug as the Arizona River Runner's talented guides show you the best of what the Grand Canyon has to offer. Visit RaftArizona.com to learn more. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.